0: Felicia Gaddis, and welcome to Ichthos. In this podcast, I will speak with artists, educators, thinkers, and ordinary people about how we define sacred in the 21st century. As a believer in Christ, I believe it is more important now than ever before to understand how our faith is evolving, but also to understand and find common ground with individuals of other faiths, as well as those who don't believe at all, in order to renegotiate our social contract for this new millennia. This is part three of my three-part series on Progressive Christianity. In the first two episodes, I asked each participant the same question. Is Progressive Christianity more of a religious movement or a political movement? Is it the liberal left's answer to the conservative's moral majority? In the first episode, I spoke with Professor Jim Burklow, the Senior Associate Dean of Religious Life at the University of Southern California and one of the founders of the Progressive Christian Movement. Progressive Christianity, according to Berkeley, emphasizes practice over dogma and offers radical welcome to anyone who wishes to follow the teachings and practices of Jesus Christ. Jews, Sikhs, Buddhists, atheists, all are welcome because Jesus' message of love and justice transcends the narrow understanding of the conservative Christian movement. Which got me thinking, what exactly was Jesus' message of love? And the first thing that came to mind was the golden rule. So I went to Luke chapter 10, verse 27. In that passage, Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. What I notice is the first thing Jesus instructs us to do is to love God. And in Matthew's account, he literally says that loving God is the first thing to do then we can love our neighbor as ourselves. But how do we do this? To get a better understanding of this, I had a conversation, well, actually two, with Professor David Albertson, Associate Professor and Director of Graduate Studies for the School of Religion at the University of Southern California. Professor Albertson currently teaches a course called Love and Its Reasons, Eros and Transcendence, in which he explores the meaning of eros, a word normally associated with erotic or physical love, but which historically has been used in connection with the transcendent, that God has arrows for us, and that we should have arrows for him. I've done three interviews so far. I've done one with um, Jim Berkla, mm-hmm. and I did one with Father Mark Kovalevsky at um, St. John's Cathedral. Yeah, sure. I'm a member there. I think I'm headed in that direction. Uh-huh. So I, I kind of went back to the more traditional route.
1: Yeah, beautiful church there.
0: It is. It's a very beautiful church. And it's creedal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's so important. What religion are you? I'm Roman Catholic. You're Roman Catholic. Yes. Okay.
1: But I had a, that's a part of a long journey for me from being in a non-denominational church where I grew up okay. into an Episcopal church looking for a little more creedal stability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Agree, totally agree. <laughs> and then for lots of reasons, finding that vision for me working out best in the Catholic church.
0: Really? Yes. That is so interesting. Then it went exactly obviously. Yeah, I hear you. I
1: hear you come back around in the, right in the middle <laughs> Yeah, uh, that I
0: agree. The other place was difficult to deal with because there was a, it was weird. And that, that's something I asked Jim Burkloe about. There was a lot of um, negative vibe when it came to the whole expression aspect. There, mm. there was a, a real strong mm. negative vibe with regard mm. to that. I'm like, no, I, I get that you may not have experienced it, but that's not something you should really demean.
1: And you find the Episcopalians are more open to charismatic experience? Um, and there's a lot of charismatic Episcopalians.
0: There are. Well, and not
1: everyone knows that. You know <laughs> that. There are, well, there are.
0: I know that because I went to England yeah. in 2017 and oh, 2016. Yeah. And I started looking at the Anglican Church. That's why I started, I went to the Episcopalian. Got it. um, Because um, I was at Westminster Abbey Mm. in December of 2017. I picked up a book there Mm. called The State of the Church, the Church of the State. Mm. And it gives you a little bit of history of the English church. But it also talks about how the church, it's in a period of really seeking how to move forward in the 21st century to make the church relevant mm-hmm. and when i was there in december um i was in trafalgar square and saint martin's had um a christmas pageant where they had you know live donkey and then players out there and they mm. were singing in a very traditional way mm-hmm. but after that they had a gospel concert mm-hmm. so we went over to the gospel concert and it was mm-hmm. a full mm. typical gospel concert so fun. there they're inventing it again. Yeah. They're reinventing it. It's right. it's a living, yeah. breathing entity, and it's not formulaic, and yeah. I, I really like that.
1: Yeah, and that they don't feel that they need to get rid of tradition in order no. to be contemporary.
0: And that's something I was talking to Jim Burklow about. A lot of this stuff isn't really new. It might be new to us, mm-hmm. but it's not. The ecstatic experience in worship is not new. Mm-hmm. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about because you're doing research mm. on... Kind of the ancient aspect of that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, I said that I personally had had an experience that was an ecstatic experience, but I never would have called it Eros. Mm. (laughs) Um, I want you to speak a little bit more about what that means.
1: So Eros is just a Greek word that means desire. And the Greeks before Christianity had a couple different words for love, agape, Eros, Philos, there's other Astorgia but, but they Astorgea. The Christians early on latched onto the word agape, especially in like John's gospel and First John
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and Paul in order to identify the particular Christian meaning that they meant by it. But then in the early centuries of Christian theology in the church, there was debate about, it was the obvious question, is Eros and agape the same thing? So we can definitely say God is agape, that's in the New Testament. Right. But can we say God is eros in -hmm. the same way? And eros had been used to mean a kind of restless, does not necessarily sexual, it's not even necessarily physical, but it does connote a restlessness, a desire that draws you to something. A passion. A passion, a desire on the move, a sense of incompleteness, a kind of, yeah, a very emotion-laden desire. Mm -hmm. not sort of agape, which you can have toward a stranger or out of a sense of duty or a sense of consolation or loving kindness like in the Hebrew Bible, right? So that was a debate. And I would say, you know, most of the Christian tradition in the ancient church tried to hold the line between them and to say, one of these has to do with sexuality and our physical nature, and one of these has to do with love for God. And Augustine of Hippo north african you know bishop from the 300s Mm -hmm.
2: um
1: made a very strong case and his was probably the most influential certainly was in the western church for a long time to say insofar in his view insofar as sexual love always has some degree of selfishness built in and that's ineradicable our love for god should move in the opposite direction toward agape love And he had different Latin terms for that. But that was very important. Now, against that sort of mainstream background, there's a minority report. And some theologians and some mystical theologians wanted to make the more radical point that it is proper and appropriate to name God not just as Agape, but as Eros. That God has desire for us. And that therefore, and so God has like an all-encompassing desire for us. And it's not just sort of a loving regard, or loving-kindness, or paternal or maternal care, but it's actually desire for us. And that likewise the soul, and embodied souls, can respond with desire back to God. So people like Origin of Alexandria, an Egyptian author in the 200s, and Pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite, a Syrian monk in the 500s, they both emphasize these ideas. So um, Pseudo-Dionysius talks about ecstasy, extasis. Extasis is from a Greek word. Um, he's not the one who invented it in Christian use, but his definition is it's when you go outside of yourself, to go beyond the boundaries of the self, we might say. And when you go outside of yourself, um, it's uh, something that, truly speaking, only something that God can do fully, but also the mystic can do it. For example, Dionysius says, you go outside of yourself in the knowledge of God because your mind can only handle so many concepts and To truly conceive of God you have to paradoxically exit your own conceptual capacities and Know God in a kind of unknowing beyond the limits of your mind
0: So you're saying that in order to do that you have to exit your singular consciousness and enter into a greater consciousness
1: it's it could that, that could be one interpretation of his words. Okay. Another interpretation has been that there's two other schools of thought. Another interpretation has been that it is essentially a negative experience. So when we hear silence, it is an experience. It's auditory, but it's, of course, the absence of sound. Mm-hmm. And when we see, we close our eyes and we see darkness, it is a visual experience, but it's an absence of light. In the same way, to truly know God is an experience of an absence of knowing. In which you're there, but you're not totally there there because you're outside of yourself, ecstasis. So that's a way of talking about how can the human being experience the divine truly. To truly experience the divine, you have to pass beyond yourself. Other interpretations have said that Dionysius means that after the boundary of death, you'll Mm -hmm. rejoin God and then truly know God as we are known, right? right? like St. Paul says in the New Testament. Another interpretation, now this is getting back to the other point, is that you go outside of yourself as we do in erotic love. To love another person is to go outside of yourself for them. Mm -hmm. And to not care for your own needs, perhaps not even care after your own life, but to care completely in service of the good of another, going outside of yourself. So there's also a love erotic interpretation of Dionysius's. Ecstatic love. It's not the only one, but that's another one.
0: So that is actually kind of like a companion to what Jesus says that a man is to love his wife as he would his own flesh, but also as Christ has loved the church and be willing to give his life for it.
1: Yeah, uh, it's really important the erotic meaning of that, right? Mm -hmm. That male, female sexuality in their fusion, in in their union, is a model for the soul and God being united. And that sort of erotic mysticism is a very important part of Christian mystical traditions too. And they would mean that both, and ancient Christians explicitly, both in the sense of an erotic union Mm -hmm. and in the sense of going outside of yourself in an erotic union and passage into the other. Okay. And they capitalize upon all the resonances we can imagine about that between the soul and God. Dionysius connects Eros Mm -hmm. and ecstasis or ecstasy in one more sense that's really quite remarkable. And I can't think of another author who does it in this way Dionysius says that the whole origin of our cosmos begins with an ecstatic erotic movement from God out of God into the world Uh and that he says that God was so to speak seduced by the possibility of a world that God could love and found himself seduced and beguiled outside of himself in the creating of the world. Mm-hmm. So the initial ecstatic movement is not the mystic or the soul. Creation. It's God's ecstatic movement. Mm-hmm. Loving a world into being. Right? Which is a moment of erotic pulling out of God's self into another world. Otherwise it just would have been God by himself. Right?
0: Actually, Kabbalah says something similar to that. That we are... There's no personification of God in Kabbalah at all. It's... He is light. And he is an emanation. Mm-hmm. And he needed to create a vessel to receive, to impart into, mm-hmm. and that desire to have that vessel to impart into is mm-hmm. what caused him to create us to be that vessel. Mm-hmm. That we were intended to receive what it is he has to impart, mm-hmm. and that we are also intended to then give, mm-hmm. as we have been given to. Mm-hmm. So that goes back to what That's you. That's exactly
1: right, and they're in similar. I mean, roughly speaking, we're still talking about Eastern Mediterranean sometime between we don't know when Kabbalah begins exactly, but mm-hmm. sometime around two hundred to eight hundred. Some of the structures, the concepts, the ideas of a you know, of a sort of um, the divine having a tenfold capacity inside or a fourfold or a binary male-female mm-hmm. those certainly pre-exist right. in Pythagorean traditions for example okay. about the holy one meeting the holy two
2: mm-hmm.
1: and out of those becomes a new fruitfulness of ten or four
2: okay. and out of
1: that you know, holy decad of ten then we can understand all possible structures in the universe mm-hmm. that's a Pythagorean idea with mm-hmm. some Christian authors but not many Okay. Made use of, but Judaism and Kabbalah made more sense of that, but but to go back to the idea, those um, that that sense of an emanation and of a sort of cyclical coming out of God, mm-hmm. and then the mystical life is an attempt to return to God, right but then God, Dionysius says, and this is foundational for almost all Christian mysticism god's he says God's ecstatic capacity to remain God even while. Going out of God's self
2: mm-hmm.
1: into the world and then returning back. Mm-hmm. The whole foundation of that movement and of therefore the spiritual life is that God is the only one who has the ecstatic capacity to still remain God while being other than God in the emanation into the cosmos.
0: Okay. Does so that... ecstasy
1: is foundational for that emanation movement.
0: Okay. That's us receiving him, coming out of himself to encounter us.
1: That's right. And then Christian mystics would then add the other layer, that that's exactly what the idea of the Incarnation is supposed to mean. Right. There's a famous author, you may know, Irenaeus of Lyon, writing in the late 100s in France. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And Irenaeus, a very important early Christian theologian, says, God became man so that man could become God. Hmm. That the incarnation, it's not just sort of like the singularity of Jesus dropping into the cosmos, but the incarnation Hmm. is sort of like throwing a ladder down, right? Along that pathway of emanation. A (laughs) lifeline. A lifeline. Exactly a lifeline. Yeah, yeah. And that human beings can then, because of that, it sort of changed the nature of the cosmos. And human beings have a capacity then and an opportunity to sort of
0: experience,
1: work our way back and to experience... Not to become Christ, but kind of to become Christ. Yeah. Right? Yeah. To join that movement of incarnation, which therefore is a very fleshly movement for Christians involving Mm -hmm. the waters of baptism, the bread of the sacrament, the oil of anointing, all these sort of material means,
2: Mm
0: -hmm.
1: which they have to be physical in order to lead you back up the physical ladder.
0: Well, isn't that also what they're talking about when... In, in genesis when we said that well, we are made in his image and likeness that it kind of took a minute for us to experience being made in his image and mm-hmm. likeness and that the incarnation was in a way of us being able to experience that likeness that we have with him
1: yes and lots right. of other christian authors around the time of Dionysus, a little bit earlier so these are ancient greek and ancient turkey in, in, the, in the region we call turkey but eastern mediterranean mm-hmm. Christian authors will talk about the incarnation as the divine painter repainting the image, which Mm. had lost some of its original luster and glory.
0: A little dingy. So it's
1: a repainting. And this is why, do I have any examples in here? This is why icons are so important for Eastern Christians, because they think it's not just accidental. It's not a picture of Jesus. Mm -hmm. It's a remembering that Jesus himself is the divine artwork of repainting the human image Mm. in vivid color. Right. Right which then we can sort of allow ourselves to be seen by in prayer and everything. I like to think, and I teach students, I like to think of Christian mysticism as really sustaining, next to the mainstream church, this vision of erotic relationship with God. And that's another good way to talk about what mysticism is. It's not understanding God's love through all the normal means, like the institution, or the scripture, or the priest, right, where it's mediated. But mysticism is an immediate encounter with God, nothing in between, Mm -hmm. it's very intimate and sudden and unexpected, Mm -hmm. like erotic desire, and it's the soul's erotic longing for God and God's erotic longing back for the soul, on the model of, which is a frequent text in Christian mysticism, the Song of Songs, Mm -hmm. right? The husband and the wife, or the husband the bride and the bridegroom, and the soul and God. So... All that or to say. The,
0: the scripture that says as a dear panteth for the water exactly. so my soul oh, longeth after longs
1: for long thee. thee." those are the kind of verses that origin, he has a little <coughs> mini treatise on this, and he's mm-hmm. very, he's, he says like a lot of Christians are not comfortable say, using the word eros to describe God's love but we have to, and here's why and he cites text exactly like that mm. uh, to say that you know, God's love is an erotic love for us, and we love back an erotic love for God
0: After my conversation with Professor Albertson, my head was really swimming. Agape, Eros, Extasis, these are all forms of love, ways that God loves us and we are to love Him and each other. Agape, the loving kindness spoken of in the New Testament, is what most of us are familiar with. But Eros and Extasis were the two that intrigued me the most. Could the terms be used interchangeably? Was one a more intense version of the other? Were they mutually exclusive? So I went back to Professor Albertson to clear things up.
1: Eros is, in Dionysius, he, he brings them closer together, but Eros just is a Greek word for longing. Right. So it just means the kind of desire that begins from an emptiness or a lack. Okay. Like, I love my cat, mm-hmm. but it's not a sort of yearning. Right. Because I don't lack anything that the cat fulfills. Right. And I, you know, uh, but I yearn for a partner
0: Mm-hmm.
1: because I perceive a lack that my partner fulfills or right. I yearn for food because I feel a lack of food inside my stomach and I'm hungry
0: well like in and right now I'm rereading Genesis mm. and we're talking about um, Adam naming the mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. well he named everything and then he needs something that's more like him mm-hmm. and from that you get woman mm-hmm. and in that there was a difference in the way he perceived and mm-hmm. connected with her versus yeah. the way he connected with yeah. the rest of creation.
1: And and ancient Christian readers of Genesis would have said, and notice that Eve comes out of a lack, right, mm-hmm. of the rib coming out of his side. Right. Which then puts him in a permanent relationship belonging for the female. Mm-hmm. But the, um, this was controversial for Dionysus to assign. So when I talked about ecstasy, that God has the ecstatic, first of all, going out of God's self and emanation, but also God's the only one who could go so completely out of Himself and still remain God.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The other side of it, but even to assign then, as Dionysus does, to say that God doesn't just love the world, but God yearns for the world. Okay, that was very radical, because it's in the New Testament, as you know, in John, in First mm-hmm. John, that mm-hmm. God is agape love. But there was another term, yearning. There was another author named Origin of Alexandria, mm-hmm. the 200, who said we do have to use the word yearning also. Not just that God is love, but God is erotic yearning. Right. That's very different. Not just cat love, but partner love, <laughs> right? And he said we have to do that um, because the everything that we put together in our minds about sexuality and eros and longing and desire... The original instance of that is God's love for the soul. Human bodies sort of imitate that in the material world, right. but the original is is more real than physical sexuality. But Dionysus takes that a step further to say that God, yearning, God's yearning, led from a kind of, and this is the mystery, from a kind of lack needed to love the world. And Dionysus sort of leaves that as a mystery of where that lack comes from, as a really sort of provocative statement statement, and profound statement that God is not just love, God is yearning.
2: Hmm.
1: Because that means there's some mysterious belonging together. And there's also the aspect
0: of perfection having a need. Yes. And how can something that is self contained and self aware Mm -hmm. and self sustaining and existing? have need Mm -hmm. because we tend to perceive need as a lack indeed or a weakness
1: and we really only get christian literature that really plums this in literary and poetic detail Mm -hmm. when we get to women authors Mm -hmm. in the 12th and 13th 14th centuries in medieval europe Mm -hmm. And we have a whole range of people we call medieval mystics. But what do we mean by that? They're usually women authors writing in their own languages, Mm -hmm. not writing in Latin scholastic texts, Mm -hmm. but writing out of their own immediate experiences and writing in a way free from the sort of genres of scholastic writing. So that they write poetry, they write love songs, they write dramatic dialogues, they write all kinds of genres of literature. And it's very common for women to talk about their experience of God as an erotic longing or for them to be the object of God's erotic longing. Mm -hmm. For example, there's a great medieval mystic named Mechthild of Magdeburg from Germany (laughs) from the 1200s. And she writes down a series of poems, among other things, it's called The Flowing Light of the Godhead is the name of the book. And she writes down a series of love poems which she hears God speaking to her. Mm. You are my softest little pillow. You are my favorite little dove. You are, you taste like a sweet grape. That's my favorite. one. <laughs> There's all kinds of like little sweet nothing. And this is, you know, the idea of God having yearning for the soul. Right. The male authors don't usually write about that. They write about being and knowledge and things like that. Right. The female authors, excluded from that, says not that they couldn't be philosophers, but having been excluded from that philosophical preoccupation, they poetize, Right poeticize this sort of understanding of the soul and God in an erotic dialogue?
0: I was telling you once before, um, and I didn't record it last time, so why I'm bringing it up this time, um, that I had an experience. And I think it was an ecstatic experience, but I want clarity on that. I was in church. This was in my charismatic non-denominational church. Mm-hmm. We were having praise and worship. And there was a point in the worship where I was singing and praying, praising and crying, but there was a, a a moment where I felt like it was this. And I motioned with my hand, moving it back and forth from my heart upward toward heaven. Mm. That what I was doing, sound was being made, mm-hmm. but the communication wasn't taking place this way. It was taking place from my heart to God's heart. And physically, I did that mm. because it... That's where I felt that connection was at. Mm -hmm. So would you call that an ecstatic experience or Mm -hmm. an experience of errors?
1: I think that could be both. These are not, they're not in, they're not in competition. Okay. And they're not in contrast. There are some accounts of ecstatic experience, which not to trivialize it, but we would use a term more like blackout, being being outside of myself, right? Right. Like I don't, I have a gap in my subjective memory of, of the time. Right. And those are also very common in medieval mystical literature. Experiences of ecstasis where someone says, I came back into my senses and I realized I'd been gone for two hours. Mm -hmm. Right? So that's sort of the idea of the senses being dropped down to zero. Right. But there's other ideas of ecstasis or ecstasy, moving beyond the self, where you do feel that there has been some perforation, opening Mm -hmm. of the boundaries of the self in a Godward direction. What you've described is not that far off from the records of experiences by an author named, another Dutch, Hodvig of Antwerp, okay. who's writing in the 1200s, we don't know much about her, but she has several visions. She was extremely literate, and she, all of her mysticism is focused on erotic experience, and she has an experience that as she goes up to receive the bread of the Eucharist, mm-hmm. the bread changes in front of her eyes, first to becoming a lamb, then an infant child, then into the body of Jesus. And instead of sensorily experiencing the moment of eating, she sensorily has a sort of dream vision of embrace of the male body of Jesus. Mm. And then she says, I dissolved out of myself in this moment of erotic encounter. I'm paraphrasing. Mm. but So there's lots of different versions of, of um, boundaries of the self, and then whether the object of love is God, the creator, mm-hmm. the heart of God, Jesus, Mary, Jesus as a male body, Jesus as some transcendent form, almost every combination we can conceive of. Mm-hmm. But they're not necessarily in, in competition. That's important.
0: I was reading Alan Bloom. Okay. Um, love and Friendship. Oh, was that. His last book, mm. where he talks a lot about the loss of arrows. Mm -hmm. What we created in modern life, he says, not that we have attained the condition of solitary self-sufficiency that Rousseau so vividly characterized and Kant, looking to Rousseau, calls the very model of the sublime, but that we are lonely while living in society Mm -hmm. with all the social needs of others yet unable to satisfy them. That somehow through Mm -hmm. a tainted Mm -hmm. enlightenment,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: we've managed to separate Eros from
2: love,
0: Mm -hmm. put us in a state of scientific reductionism and created this isolation. And in doing so, it's affected all aspects of our personal life. With what you're talking about with Eros, it's also affected our worship and our spiritual life.
1: Uh, The big question in the class that we pose is sort of our framing question is, in order to talk about erotic longing in a romantic relationship, do you need, or what does it mean to have or not to have, reference to the transcendence, reference to the divine in some way,
2: mm-hmm.
1: in order to make sense of this encounter. So even before Christianity, we start with Plato's dialogues, And Plato says, you cannot make sense of your erotic attachment to someone else's physical form in a relationship unless you can triangulate up with the divine.
0: Well, that's what marriage is. Yeah. It's... Yeah. Well, the, kind of it's the triangle but yeah. But yeah, <laughs> yeah i
1: hear you so we we kind of start with that presupposition or that that question is that so then what does it mean when that moves into christianity what does it mean when then in modernity we kind of do away with that transcendent aspect
0: that's something else that bloom talks about he blames kinsey actually um kinsey uh-huh. took sex and uh-huh. completely separated sex and eros and
1: that's the Roman Catholic (laughs) argument
0: completely separated the two and because he did that people have lost the ability is what he's going for Uh to be able to connect on that deeper level yeah which is why you have so many divorces and have young people engaging in activities they shouldn't be engaging in way younger than they should be Mm -hmm. because now it's just become an act bodily function Mm -hmm. in a place of individual satisfaction versus actual connection Mm -hmm. so that's his argument which i kind of agree with
1: well it seems like there are two groups that are making the same mistake so one group says sexuality has nothing to do with your religion so don't do it and one group says sexuality has nothing to do with religion so do whatever you want and the other option is not to be sort of victorian about it but just to say like these things connect with Religion and transcendence and the divine, that's another option that neither extreme is looking at, right? right? right. They, they do have to do with each other.
0: Contrary to our modern cultural perception, ecstasis and eros do have to do with religion and transcendence and the divine. They have to do with the way we love God, with the way God loves us, and ultimately, the way we learn to love our fellow man. But we are going to have to go back and reclaim their meaning from antiquity. In order to be a truly progressive church in the 21st century, I kind of think that if that connection with God in the sense of uh, a tangible relationship is somehow reestablished, it affects everything else. Mm-hmm. And then you don't necessarily need political movements.
1: I think you're right. I think when we think about ethical regard for my neighbor, it sounds odd to talk about some sort of erotic longing. Not not specifically for that neighbor's body or anything like that. Part of what I owe to my neighbor is some sort of performance or act of a longing for some good for them.
2: True.
1: And that does or, some... or maybe the er- the
0: the, er- the erotic aspect is your love for God and pleasing him.
1: Mhm.
0: And that if you do that, mm-hmm. With passion for him, then you
1: will do that. For we will him. do that toward your neighbor. Right. True. I'm very interested myself in the question you asked at the beginning, which is: is this question mark? Who knows? But is this the? the is it a moment of a progressive swing of the pendulum for a progressive American Christianity that has the same sort of unifying platform that a more conservative Christianity did from the 80s up until now, and right. I think that's over. And then um, the second question was. How do Christians like the ones you met in England, who are trying to look forward into a kind of not exactly post enlightenment, but whatever this new epoch that we're all embarking upon, post modern,
2: yeah,
1: is a post modern Christianity one that can that doesn't see the old contrast between tradition and progress, so that. A progressive Christianity would be one that would make sense or make use of its own traditionalism that right. that makes use of the resources to put those two things together
2: right,
1: right. that where i I think that's sort of where the money is right going forward mm-hmm. in terms of progressivism is one that would not say that's the old way we did it. We need to reimagine our worship life, our aesthetic artistic life, our political life, social life in fresh new categories that get away from the old Christian way of doing things, but instead of seeing that as an opposition, said in order to move forward, we want to find something from the past. We have to do some work to choose what would be worth keeping and right. what we should leave alone and not, not revive from the past. right? But choose wisely, but to choose social forms or movements or vocabularies like erotic longing for mysticism, that would have a whole new life, right? Mm-hmm. And would be sort of forward-looking as a representation of what Resources that tradition has in the future. Mm-hmm. I totally agree that that's that, that that is the most exciting Area of investment, but I'm very interested in that
0: And I agree if the progressive Christian movement continues to explore social forms and vocabularies from the past such as erotic longing and ecstasis reigniting arrows between God and his people individually and personally the possibilities are endless That would be a church that would be impactful and relevant today. Thank you for joining me, and I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Professor David Albertson. Join me again as I continue to explore how we define sacred in the 21st century. I will leave you today with the words of God's arrows towards us, His Church, the Bride of Christ, from the first chapter of a book of the Old Testament, the Song of Solomon. Your cheeks are comely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you ornaments of gold studded with silver. Ah, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly lovely.